This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. Welcome back to the second part of our conversation with Dr. Kom Hicke from the University of Lausanne on the working lives of professional athletes. In the first part, we set the scene discussing uh, the workplace environments in professional sport with the focus on professional football. And we explored the many times challenging and complicated relationships that athletes have with their teammates and others in these environments. But so in the second part, we'll continue into exploring various topics, athletes' relationship with their sport, women's football in particular as a field that is quickly developing, and then we'll go into some new directions that Colm is working on at the moment. So welcome back to the podcast, Colm. It's good to have you here. I'm very happy to be back and continue our conversation. Yeah, so we kind of finished off looking at these sometimes complicated relationships that athletes have in their environments and this sometimes lack of meaningful meaningful relationships and how uh, building relationships after they retire can also be difficult because athletes might be seen by their environment still for many years as footballers and not as uh, these people with broader identities and other interests. But so the other question I'm really interested in and I'm trying to work out is also what does it mean for athletes to be in these professional football environments or professional sport environments in terms of their relationship with the sport itself, with playing football itself? So, for example, Martin Roderick, with whom you worked and He's talked about this uh, football as labor of love, and this is how it's sold to young players. This is something really great, the best thing that can happen to you. But so he'd argue that for at least for some athletes, as their career progresses, it starts to feel much more like work. So there's a shift in how these athletes approach their sport. So I wonder, you've done extensive extensive research, talked to many professional athletes. So can you provide us a little bit of nuance in terms of how this relationship with the sport itself uh, changes in, in different athletes' lives? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And, and first of all, I mean, it's always... I think it's always a challenge to try to follow uh, Martin Roderick. I mean, and I encourage anyone who hasn't uh, read or has Labor of Love sitting on their bookshelf, it's it's well worth a second, third, and fourth read. I think Martin really unpacks the lives of professional footballers and professional athletes so well. So I very humbly offer <laughs> my contribution and follow Martin. But I think if we if we think about this in the whole life course, the whole sporting biography of of players. So we start and, and what happens? 
we're four or five, six, and we start playing a sport and we love it. We love playing, whether it's in the field with our friends, at school, on the street, if the memory is the first time you're able to put on that shirt for your under 11s, there's fun involved. This is something that you love and you love to do and you want to play every chance you get. And it's fantastic. And and people find, and young young children find uh, self-confidence and worth from this. And you're good at it. And someone comes along and more and more people tell you, oh, you're really good at this. Well done. Keep going. Keep trying. Keep training. Uh, and then you move from one team to another and the success keeps coming. Uh, and it becomes more and more part of your identity. Its importance in your life comes. And then you, you end up in a, a scholarship uh, and an elite a professional academy. Uh, and again, you know, well done. You've made it. And I think slowly then the love and the enjoyment starts to be chipped away this the notion of waking up every day and being excited when's the next time i get to play football and i think more importantly when's the next time i get to play you know and it's this transition from sport as play to sport as work where we where athletes kind of not lose the love but yeah they start to view as martin puts it uh start to view their, their sport as work. And oftentimes outside of sport, we look at this as ungrateful. Like, what are you talking about? You don't have to sit in an office. You don't have to drive a bus. You don't have to work in a factory. You get to play your sport. But we're forgetting that it's still work. And very few of us wake up every day and say like, oh my God, I love my job. I can't wait to get up at 6.30 in the morning and start. And most of us, I would hope, don't have a boss who culture it's culturally accepted that can yell at us all the time uh, and comment on what we're eating comment on how much we weigh comment how fast we are how slow we are where our performance measurement is so subjective you know it's not like a, a kpi if you're in a sales market or something it's dependent on the subjectivity of the people judging your performance and that love of sport just gets chipped away at more and more and more. And and what we find is when we reach the professional status, both at elite amateur, but at the the upper echelons of football, that sport is just work. The the love is gone. uh, And there's a real cynicism to, now I have to go train and now I have to go play. And that once feeling of freedom that athletes experienced isn't there or isn't there as often or they rarely can experience that. And, and I think we need to be more understanding uh, about that perception, that this, this view that oh, these, these athletes, it's so great, they get to do what they love all the time and get paid for it. It's much more complex than that. And, uh, and their careers are, are so short. And more time needs to be given to understanding that. And yeah, I think we, we need to look away from early specialization, encouraging young athletes to, to play as many sports as they can with emphasis on play. We see some, some more good examples within not just football, but other sports moving away from early specialization, but it's still the norm. But there are always, I mean, we can cherry pick some examples, but you look at Roger Federer didn't solely play tennis until he was 14. Okay, he became one of the greatest tennis players in the world, and it's nice to use that example. But we, we have to think about this, again, considering the athlete more as a whole and being more understanding. 
Because when you're waking up every day at 6.30 to train uh, and your body hurts and, you know, you're probably taking some painkillers because you've played a match before. Um, I mean, if you look at the U.S. where they play more than, uh, for example, in professional basketball in the NBA where they play multiple games a week um, or the NFL where, or even rugby union here in, in Europe where a match is the equivalent of going through a car crash and then the next day, the next week, you have to prepare for your next match. So there's issues of pain, there's issues of injury. I think we need to be more understanding of, okay, what we're asking our professional athletes to do uh, and and why we're asking them to do it. You know, oftentimes it's for the public zone and entertainment. You know, if you think about it, you could view sport as the product and the athletes are the performers and thus the product. So why shouldn't an athlete feel like they're workers uh, and not sports people. And yeah, I think in and around that environment, it's it's very easy. And I would, in my opinion, it's the cultural norm to view your sport with probably a lot of cynicism. And probably you're very happy, maybe not in terms of financially what it means, but you're ready to leave. Uh, and you're dreading, some, I mean, we've had, I was speaking to some players and some athletes, and they're dreading you know, putting on their boots and having to go out on the pitch. They're dreading, you know, the next training session. They're dreading getting up to run or training late in the evenings. It's a tough, it's a tough career. It's a tough way of life. And I think outside of a sport, we need to be more understanding of that. And I think those individuals who look after, care for, coach and manage uh, elite athletes and professional athletes need to be more receptive uh to these notions and again just how vulnerable athletes can be uh and you know how vulnerable they even they are is uh where they are in their biographies i mean often our athletes are are in their early to mid-20s i mean this is still so young and appropriate support uh and information i think are an understanding are all required ensuring to help ensure that maybe athletes aren't as exploited as as they are being yeah, I think it can be also difficult for us as an audience to somehow accept it that these are the privileged few you mentioned in the first part about 0. 0.0, what was it? Yeah, 0.012%, yeah. <laughs> uh, of the athletes who so-called make it and, you know, they are the privileged few and few who achieve their dreams. And then for them to not love what they do sounds somehow difficult to understand but so and for many athletes you've also uh, done research on identity management and how athletes um, portray themselves in the public sphere and all these things so it's not something that sits well with the story that they are supposed to portray in terms of how they relate to their their work i think yeah for sure but i also think we're seeing a new generation of athletes who are more aware of that. Uh, and there's a lot of examples. Interestingly, a lot in female sport. So, I mean, if you look at uh, uh, Schifrin, Michaela Schifrin in alpine skiing, um, her father passed away and and she took, she removed herself maybe at the height of her powers and took a year out. She also made the decision that she competed in, I mean, a few years ago, she competed and medaled in gold medaled in every discipline. And then chose to just focus on a few. And previous athletes, so for example, Lindsey Vaughn, 
uh, criticized her for not competing in every event for the rest of her career. Uh, you have Simone Biles as well. There's multiple examples in tennis now, in women's tennis, where athletes recognizing, young athletes recognizing, no, I need to step away. I need to take a break. I think we're seeing, and I, I'm not sure it's the case in all sports across all the boards, but these examples are really what we can say is athletes who are at the top, who really, really made it, you know, number ones in the world. And they're maybe expressing their agency in new ways. I mean, there are, in the case of Simone Biles, okay, of course, there, there was tragedy linked into like uh, issues of abuse within her sporting experience. And unfortunately, that's a norm in a lot of sports. But what we could see as a positive is athletes being more aware of themselves and their position within their sporting environments and, and now maybe starting to exercise their agency. I, I, I'm not quite working on it just yet, but something that's really interesting to me uh, moving away from football within basketball is this 3v3, the development of the 3v3 now into a game into an Olympic sport. So maybe for those listeners who aren't aware, basketball traditionally played 5v5, you had 12 people on your team, you had your coach, very traditional model. And recently, the uh, 3v3 3v3 basketball, which has always kind of been played informally, was formalized and accepted as an Olympic sport. And, you know, the preliminary kind of interviews I'm doing, where I'm asking players, okay, you know, are you, what's, why the motivation to move to this sport? And they say, yeah, uh, it's about being in charge of myself. Now I don't have a coach. I have my two other friends and and we're elite and we play and we have a, a manager who kind of takes care of the travel, but I don't have to conform to the norms or expectations of my coach. I'm in charge again. And all the sentiments, you know, can generally be described as expressions of their agency and taking control. So, and I'm, I'm not sure where it comes from. Maybe it's the greater access to information and social media and athletes now maybe expressing their own views to each other on a, a much bigger scale within, within the media and that information being more accessible. Maybe it's the great work that we, are, we as researchers are doing. <laughs> but I think athletes are, are for sure becoming more aware of their agency and their ability to take control if they can. I'm not saying it's the norm, but there are examples that, yeah, I think are positive that might trend well for the future. But something I think that's worthwhile uh, or worth future investigations and hopefully something somewhere down the line, um, uh, <laughs> I'll be able to explore more fully. Right. These are exciting developments. And you mentioned some of these sporting women who made different choices from what is the norm and they are showing agency in how they how they manage their careers. And so I thought much of your research is focused on men's football and we talked a lot about that in the first part of our conversation. But at the same time, women's football is growing, growing massively. And so more professional opportunities, both for players and, and for coaches and others to to work professionally now in the women's uh, football environments. So what are your thoughts in terms of an observations? How is the women's uh, game, if we look at, again, your topics, workplace environments and, and how athletes manage their identity? Do you think that women's football is kind of moving? Are the processes uh, moving women's football more towards what men's football looks like? Or does women's football also have some 
some of its own own dynamics and perhaps some different processes. Yeah, um, I think the development of the women's game is is really important and and really meaningful. In fact, just last year, EDAP and our, our sports unit, we have a very long partnership actually with UEFA as in being based in Lausanne and Neon is is only 20 minutes away. We've been working with UEFA on a number of projects for well over 10 years now and one of our most recent projects was working with their women's football unit. So when UEFA launched their time for action football strategy in 2019, okay, just before the pandemic, this was the landmark, UEFA's landmark women's football strategy and that it was their first ever strategy devoted purely to women's football. Uh, and as part of that, they wanted to understand the current provision of support by, offered by national associations to their women's national teams. Uh, so we worked in partnership with them to assess the provision of support and care that all women's national teams were given by their, their national federations. So what the English FA gave to their senior women's team, all their under-19 team and their under-17 team. Uh, and we did this for the English FA all the way to the Moldovan FA, to the Slovakian, to the Polish, uh, yeah, across all their 55 countries. And what was interesting is that we saw some really positive development and countries or rather national associations moving some things really, really forward and trying to be very progressive. And we saw other examples that would, would really frighten you in terms of the lack of support that national team players received. I mean, for example, some of the things that we, we examined were the competition and training facilities, the professional status and financial support that they received, and also looked at pregnancy and parental support. And some of the things were, were really, I'm trying to be kind, some of them were very, very positive. And as I mentioned, countries were moving really in the right direction. But for example, when we asked players what their experiences were, um, and for 50% of national team captains expressed that they had experienced sexism as a form of discrimination in the course of their professional experiences and playing for their national team. Notions of homophobia were also quite high. Racism was also quite high. And there was elements of discrimination around physical appearance and age. And those things aren't being really addressed. However, what we see is uh, from the report, we established two, two kind of outcomes, uh, a, minimum uh, a set of minimum standards to which all national associations uh, should provide to their players. But what we also advocated for was minimum standards should not be our aim. Best practices should be our aim. And in order to help drive the women's game forward, we need to implement notions of best practice. But these best practices um, can't be a carbon copy of what the men's game is. We have to recognize that there are differences in the game uh, and also in the athletes themselves. Now, do we think the players should receive equal pay in terms of playing for their national team as opposed to their men's team? Yes, 100%. In terms of differences, what we're looking at is maybe provisions of support during and, and post-pregnancy. So whether national associations uh, offer players a form of support during the pregnancy. I mean, what we found was only nine out of 55 
national associations offered that type of support to players. In terms of specific uh, programs of support for women who want to, uh, for female athletes who want to come back after childbirth, we only had six national associations that said they, they recognize that need and are able to provide that provision. I think equally when you talk about the nuances, the notion of childcare, recognizing that a parent can be mother and also considered the other parent. There's nuances uh, in the women's game that need to be first recognized and then appropriately addressed. What I can say in a very, in a very positive light was that UEFA and the national associations were very receptive of, at times, what was the critical elements of our report. And we've, I think we've already seen in the last year and a half the quite large steps that are being taken to address those shortcomings. And I think it's, I think it, women's football is, is moving in the right direction. That's not to say, though, that it's, it's a positive experience for all female athletes across all of Europe. And the obstacles that are faced in, in one country can be very, very different and also wrapped in the cultural norms and expectations within that country. So in some instances, we're advocating for collective bargaining agreements and quite high-end stuff in terms of the legal status of players. In other countries, we're advocating for policies that kind of help address, for example, one country's best player was 19. Um, she just got married and she now will no longer pay for the national team. So how do we navigate you know, those cultural values in a way that still supports the athlete if it's her wish to, to keep playing? So again, it's, it's a, a very nuanced environment. I think in terms of looking at identity, bringing back to your question, most, because of the structure of the women's game, most players have experienced some form of dual career. So what you find is female professional players or elite uh, football players uh, who are women, they're moving through their careers with additional additional identities that, that are legitimized. They're often going to university. They're off, often studying. In some countries, they're often still mothers and have to pick up their kids from school, you know. So I would say they're probably, in terms of our, in terms of their holistic development, they're probably quite a few steps ahead of, of the men's game. However, much more can be done to recognize their professional status their status as elite athletes and to support them, whether that's financially or through the support they receive through their clubs or national associations. And I think a long way, we could go a long way too in, in recognizing them as professional employees. So the same rights and statuses that we give uh, female employees working within, for example, a large organization, I mean, they should be given to, to female elite athletes as well. Yeah, I think what you mentioned about the dual career, kind of there are two sides to this. That yes, on the other hand, having your education, you mentioned many of them go to universities. Yes, clearly this broadens your identity. This broadens your possibilities in the world. What you can do, but on the other hand, for a very long time, having a job or something else on the side has been simply a necessity for women because they don't have a proper professional stages in the sport so yes mm -hmm. exactly and i think i mean i would hope that's the scenario we're going to we're moving towards and it's always the question of dual careers right do we want to promote dual career opportunities or do we want to provide our female athletes if they so wish 
to dedicate themselves entirely to sport, you know, um, and that 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 opportunity ar- arises, or and that we work towards that development. Now, again, the same way I would advocate for athletes to always be developed holistically. <laughs> I think if if uh, female athletes decide, you know, to and if they have the opportunity to dedicate themselves entirely uh, to the professional sport, that still we address them as more than just players more than just uh athletes but i think first yeah we need we need need to get to uh, a place where they have that opportunity yeah and so yeah it's been a really interesting discussion we talked a lot about challenges problems in in professional sport environments some some solutions and some uh, ways to work work better in these environments And so recently what you've done is a new direction in your work. You work together with Colm Cronin on caring coaching. I talked to him in the podcast, in the early days of the podcast as well. So uh, listeners can go and uh, look at the details from, from this episode and Colm's work as well. But so how do you, having all this background, looking at the careers of professional athletes and these workplaces, why is caring coaching something that is attractive to you? And do you think it's part of the solution to some of these challenges we identified? How does it fit into this uh, bigger picture? I think, first of all, uh, it was uh, thinking about caring, coaching, uh, and more broadly creating cultures of caring in sport can only have positive uh, benefits and outcomes for our athletes and for our sport as a whole. Uh, and with that, I had the opportunity to work with Colm, who... If anyone hasn't already had the opportunity to read his work, uh, Colm's doing really, really great work with coaching and athletes. And I think uh, if you read anything that he's written, his passion becomes really is really evident uh, and really meaningful. And he's doing really great work in Liverpool. So it was it was really enjoyable, a really great opportunity to work to work with Colm. And he was the one that introduced me to this notion of that now nodding developed and this ethics of care. And the idea of the carer and the cared for and kind of moving that into sport. And I mean, nodding, kind of using nodding's ethics of care, Column kind of uh, started off and we defined maybe three concepts that could really improve relationships between coaches and athletes, but also athletes and organizations. So we started with uh, engrossment uh, and that was where those in an organization pay repeated attention to player and athletes needs and i think the a key word here is repeated this wasn't a one-off seminar or something that we do you know once every six months this is a decision to have constant and dedicated behavior where we through observing noticing being aware of athletes needs and having a dialogue with them and ensuring that conversation is a two-way conversation that we're not just talking at athletes that we're listening to them I mean, we talked about it in our earlier conversation. Often there's a resistance from athletes to to engage in that conversation. So especially within this engrossment uh, phase that we're creating a space where we're sensitive to the needs of athletes and allowing them maybe a space for, for them to express their needs and for us to be receptive of it. The next is the uh, the idea of motivational displacement. And that has to do with the motivation of Uh, the motivation of the carer that once we understand the needs of athletes that we have to act to meet those needs 
and importantly, the we're doing so in the interest of the athlete and not our own interest. And that's really hard in professional sport because, as we mentioned before, often not only for players but those working for teams or sports organizations, careers are are super vulnerable. And the, a new change in management could be a, a total clean house of a club and all the support staff within it. So I think it's really important that those who are caring for athletes have a certain independence from uh, management teams. Obviously, they have to work with them. But that, uh, that athletes know that, okay, these individuals are acting uh, for my best interest. Their sole motivation is acting for my best interest. And then the third one is the reciprocation of care. And that's kind of the idea that care is, again, this two-way dialogue. And that we support athletes in accepting that care that, you know, athletes, again, because of this kind of inherent resistance, sometimes to the, the, the opportunity to receive support, we have to support them in accepting the support, but also respecting their autonomy. We can't force, we can't force individuals, they have to come to this support on their own. Uh, and so really with Colin, we kind of work through these notions. And then in terms of in the everyday work environments of, I think, professional sport, these patterns of behavior, workplace norms, cultural values, these are all reinforced over time and become institutionalized. And this institutionalization of structures leads to what in management studies we call momentum, which is really just a resistance of an organization to move away or deviate from the everyday dominant practices and really to, to resist change. So the challenge, I think, is, yeah, how do we introduce sustained, meaningful change? And to account for this, Colm and I, we advocated a move away from kind of this top-down approach, kind of a linear methodology, which, which really means a CEO coming in and saying, okay, we're going to change things. Here's the five steps, and we'll move one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> um, and what Colm and I try to, again, advocate for is, Utilizing change management and transformation modeling. So looking at the work of, if anyone knows kind of change management studies. Uh, um, so working at the work, looking at the work of Cantor, of Lucha, of Cotter, we really, really used their work as kind of our foundation, our framework. And we developed the continual change model for caring cultures in sport. So a change management model dedicated to introducing caring cultures within sport. And here we really leaned on emergent change theory, which kind of sees the development and implementation of care strategies as a continuous open-ended process. And, and this accounts for the needs to be able to adapt to the fluid circumstances in professional and elite sport and the variety, of con uh, the variety of conditions, I think, that characterize elite sport. I think one has to do that, uh, not just in sport, but in all organizations, 70% of change management strategies fail. And they fail because they're not addressing this, this idea that organizations are dynamic living things. Something just isn't imposed and, okay, now one, two, three, it works. We have to account for, in sport, again, how volatile our environments are. And we have to recognize that and embrace that. So that's why... The model, I think, importantly highlights the need to address how success has to be linked to sporting performance in order to have organizational buy-in. 
So the idea is that if we're implementing change within sport and sports organizations, we have to have very specific KPIs that are that demonstrate that okay, what we're doing helps our athletes on the pitch, or on the field, or on the tr- in the track, or in the performance, and in that way we receive organizational buy-in. But there's no beginning or end in our model. Instead, we kind of assume this cyclical approach and a commitment to empowering kind of an open learning environment that allows for the critical reflection within the organization. And I think in that way, and what Colm and I are trying to propose is that we can make really meaningful strategies supporting caring cultures within between coaches and athletes, but also organizations. And we can go some way in breaking down the resistance that I think often we we face when trying to introduce change or reform in sports organizations. And so what is your own personal feeling as uh, you research these environments for many years and you also interact with the stakeholders, people who work in the field? We talked about this we can call them dark sides, the work that you've done with Martin on various challenges, these difficult relationships, insecurity, losing love of what you do and all these things. But then on the other hand, you are talking about these really positive notions about how we can build caring relationships and trust between people and and how these cultures could be or how work could be done towards reaching these aims in in our cultures of professional sport. Do you see that these ideas are kind of gaining traction? Are are these organizations changing? Are these thoughts resonating with those who work in the field? And, and do you feel that we are somehow working towards a good direction? Do you want to leave us with a positive or a <laughs> <laughs> negative note? I always try to refrain um from using the term the dark side of sport mm-hmm. there are elements of sport that are not good uh, and it's true i think okay for the for the point of the conversation yeah there are a lot of dark sides of sport but it's only recognizing those problems and addressing them that we'll be able to move forward i mean ultimately the reason why we study we work in we play sport is because we're passionate about it this is something that we love and somehow it's connected to so many people. And I think we have to remember that oftentimes because there are so many elements of sport that are not positive. Uh, and as I said, in recognizing them, understanding why they happen and addressing them, we can really move forward into promoting something that is really worthwhile and beneficial to elite athletes and also someone just going out for their 5k run on a Saturday morning. My experience has been, I would say, more and more positive in in recent years. I think there is, and it's, I, I won't say it's the norm yet, but in working with a number of organizations and listening to the experiences of a number of athletes, there is an awareness and a movement that wasn't there before. Some of the work is really hard. Some of the work is an uphill struggle for sure. But I think it's worth doing. If we look at the central role sport plays in our society and in our lives, you know, it's up to all of us to try to make it better. And a lot of small pockets and in a lot of big ways, both small and big ways, change is occurring. 
But we need more people to help, to lead, to contribute to that change. And that change and transformation has to be informed by best practice, informed by an understanding of the sport, and informed by an understanding of the dark side and where we've been in the past. And I think in doing so, yeah, we can hopefully enlighten or <laughs> make that dark side or those dark sides uh, a lot smaller. Yeah, I think these are wonderful closing words, uh, call for action, but also giving the sense that we can see many good things and, and movement towards a good direction. So thank you so much, Colm. I will link some of your publications in the episode and as your work in progress becomes available, I can also update those links so people can read the things that we have discussed today. So I look forward to seeing how, how your research uh, develops. And so thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thanks, Nora. And uh, yeah, like I said, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you. Obviously, it's always exciting to learn about your own research and what you're doing. And if anyone uh, finds any of what I said interesting, or if they want to disagree with me, <laughs> I think I'm always open to a, a healthy discussion. So really, uh, I mean, my details will be in the link below, but don't hesitate. Drop me an email, drop me a line anytime anytime you'd like. Um, everyone, I'm willing and open to also all forms of conversation and discussion. And Nora, thanks again for the, the chance to talk to you today. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research Through Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.